I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. Those sad yet hopeful words from that iconic Christmas song set the tone for this series and really set the tone for this season of the year. They remind us of the desire found in, in every human soul, in every human heart, to finally be at peace, to finally be loved, to finally be welcomed to a place where they know their home. The anthem that the choir just presented for us, uh, by the way, was arranged by the amazing Paul Tucker. Is there anything that Paul can't do? This guy is incredible. The anthem they just, they just sang for you had at the heart of it that simple declaration, I am coming home. I'm coming home. We, we know in our guts, don't we? We know in our souls, in our, in our heart of hearts, that what we want more than anything else is that simple place where we can be home. Every culture, every race, every nation speaks of this. It's told in every story from every era, really. There's a, a marvelous movie out starring Brad Pitt. It's called Allied. I highly recommend it to you. It comes from World War II. It's the tale of two. It's, a, it's based on a true story of, of two spies who meet in Casablanca, allied spies fighting against the Nazis. After their mission is complete, they fall in love. They move to Britain. They're married. They create a family. A little girl is brought into the world in the midst of all the war and all the terror and the fear. In fact, the, the child is born in the middle of an air raid. There are planes and bombs falling all around them. The hospital is being destroyed. And yet, in the courtyard, this little child is brought in the midst of flames and the, in the darkness of, of war. It's a beautiful image. But later in the film, and I won't give it away, the war comes to their house. And, and, and the wife, the woman, says to her husband, Brad, Brad Pitt. I just want a normal day. I just want a day when we can feel like we're at home, when we can just be with each other and nothing else. The scene then shifts to the hill overlooking their home in North London. It's a beautiful green hill. It's lush, rolling. They set up a, a, a plaid blanket on the hillside and there they have a picnic and their little child is, she's just one year old now and she's taking her very first steps. It's a beautiful scene, even though in the background there is a downed German bomber still smoking from its crash the night before. Some trees have been torn and burnt. There's just stumps left along the side. But even so, for a day, the war is raging around, but in that moment, that singular moment, they are at home with each other. Today's text that Monica read a few moments ago is a, it's a dream of something similar. It's the ancient prophet's twofold vision of, of both peace and justice. The first half of the reading fo focuses on care for the poor, the meek, the oppressed, on bringing justice to the world. The second half shifts to this dream, this dream of enemies lying down together, of, of little sheep sitting with the wolf, of the tiny calf, the little cow, sitting with the lion, of the child playing over the nest of the snake. Enemies lay down their weapons and sit together in peace. And then at the heart of this dream, there is that beautiful line, and a little child shall lead them. 
The earliest Christians, when they read the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah was Jesus' favorite book of the Bible, when they read it, they, they saw there a, a reflection, a, even an echo of Jesus' teaching, a reflection of his life, an echo of his teaching. The world that Isaiah hoped for 700 years before Jesus was the same one that Jesus came proclaiming and preaching. This season you will likely receive a Christmas card or two. If you're like me, maybe you'll receive several that will have those words embossed on the front. And a little child shall lead them. It's a sweet sentiment, but it, it almost feels like a fairy tale, doesn't it? A, a child will lead? How can that be? A, a child? Is, is it just a fairy tale? Or is it a prophetic word that someday, someday, someday our world will finally find the peace that God wants for all of us? Maybe it's both. Maybe it's both fairy tale and prophecy. Hope and, and dream of the world finally being at home. Of justice for all. And if that's true, then a child could lead. If there's enough for everyone, a child could lead. In its deepest sense, the central message of the Christmas holiday is about peace and justice. It's about making sure that everyone has enough food to eat, a safe place to live, a life in which they will be invited to thrive. Surprisingly, our culture has picked up on this image quite well. I know it seems like sometimes at Christmas that we can get caught up in stuff. I was driving home the other day. I've got my, my, my radio tuned to 102.1, and I'm always telling you that because our commercial for Christmas Eve will play on that station soon. And that silly little song, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, came on. And, you know, I kind of I went, oh, geez, here we go. It's fun. It's okay. But even with all that stuff, we still, this, the message still kind of leaks out. For example, go back and read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and you'll find that it's filled with biblical allusions and references. The twin themes of redemption and forgiveness are what undergird the story and move towards that marvelous conclusion. Redemption and forgiveness are not easily found in this life. Scrooge, if you know the story, of course you do, is desperate for both, but he does not want to face the truth of who he is. To note your need for forgiveness, to note our need for redemption, we have to look at ourselves openly and honestly. We have to shine the light brightly in order to reveal those portions of who we are that are less than perfect. For God's redemption, God's forgiveness to take hold. It takes courage to do this, and Scrooge is given the opportunity. He's given an, an honest and difficult view of his life, of the deeply angry, cynical, mean, frustrated man that he has become. It's a terrible thing for him to witness, but in the end, by the time we move through that, that beautiful tale, forgiveness, redemption are real. And he responds by, by, by caring for all those that he hurt for many years. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. At the heart of this timeless tale, then, one finds kindness and an all-encompassing universal love. Yes, yes, a universal love. Just an aside here to remind you that the whole idea of universal love, something that we often uh, proclaim in the, in the cute little saying, all means all, is not something that was generated by some crazy preacher from California. No, it was not generated by some, some wild-eyed guy who said, oh, we got to think about this. No, it came not from me, not from any other theologian of this century or the century before. It goes back to the time of Jesus Christ. It goes back to the time of Isaiah, when Isaiah looked out over the whole world and said, God wants nothing more than for nation to stream, for nation to stream together with nation. For life to be lived in peace, for justice to be given to all. And you know, there's, 
there is some worry in the church universal these days about what the church is going to look like. It's changing. Things are changing. It used to be the church was a certain way. You could just open the doors 100 years ago and it'd be full. It'd be fine. And folks are worried about what's happening next. But I'm telling you right now, I am not worried one bit. Not when this message, this word of God's love for all, God's love for the world, this universal love takes hold. And it has. It's taken root in this church. I've seen it. I've seen it. In the way you give yourselves to each other and to our neighbors. Is change coming? Oh, change is coming. But God's love will give us the courage we need to deal with anything and everything that is next. Well, a little commercial there for a side. Sorry. Back, back to the sermon. When forgiveness is real, when redemption has taken hold, the natural outpouring is one that leans towards restoration and towards justice, especially for the poor. This action is central to the work, really to the body of work of Charles Dickens. It's central to Jesus Christ. It's central to the Old Testament prophets. It's central to the message of the Bible. For us on this day, redemption is the key for understanding how we're to live with each other. Now, you need to know that Isaiah is writing in a universal style. He's writing in the midst of war, in the aftermath of destruction. He's writing about his country And he's noting the fact that they've sold out the poor and they've stepped on the backs of the oppressed in order for them to become more wealthy and more powerful. And in so doing, judgment has become real and they've been destroyed. But I'm wondering this morning if we can't ask the same questions about redemption and forgiveness at your house and mine. Sometimes it's easier, isn't it, to talk in the abstract about, about peace and justice in the world and the need for that. And, you know, we can kind of talk about political things and maybe even let the politics take us away from what's happening in our own very living rooms. I wonder if we have the courage to ask about our own lives. And if we can summon up the fearless ability to do so, then we'll start to see where it's needed in the world. It starts at home. And then we can see it taking place in our neighborhood, in our community, maybe even our world. But but what about you? Where in your life do you need to turn around? Where are you desperate for peace? What part of you knows you need some forgiveness? Is it possible that a childlike love, a peaceful sense of fairness can can actually exist within you. A generous portion of forgiveness can be a part of who you are and the way you live. I took my first position in ministry in 1979. It was my first paid job as a youth director when I was 20 years old. Most of the kids in my youth group were just a couple, three years younger than than me. I signed a deal with Twin Oaks Christian Church to teach Sunday school on Sunday mornings and lead the youth group on Sunday nights for $30 a week. I was overpaid. Trust me on this. But I love those kids. We had a, a, a marvelous, marvelous time together. One thing I realized right away, though, every one of them was looking for love looking for a, a place to call home. These, these kids came from, from fairly affluent families But like any of us, they were desperate for a sense of belonging. 
I especially one, remember one sweet girl. Her name was Melody. She was 14 years old. She was an eighth grader. She was the kid who always wanted to read the scripture for the Bible study portion. She was the kid who always wanted to volunteer to bring the snacks and, and just kind of kept everybody feeling good and, and all. And she was just a, a marvelous joy to be around. But I also remember the time I, well, let me tell you about it. I'd been there about a year, and it was going terribly. It was Sunday night. The youth program was just falling apart. There was 15 kids there that night, which was really good. The church was only about 50, 50 members, but we had 15, sometimes 16, 17 show up on a Sunday night. But it was going terribly, and I got mad. I got frustrated. I lost my anger. And I said, forget about it. We're done. And then I told him to just go to a hot place when you die. Call your parents, I said. And they did. I marched out to the parking lot, and I stood there and fumed as moms and dads showed up and picked up their kids. Melody was one of the last ones to go, and she walked over to me, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, I love you and and Julie. This church is like my second home. I don't know why you got so angry tonight. I, and she stopped, and she began to sob. I swear to you, it feels like it happened just yesterday. I didn't care, though. I was angry. I was righteous. I knew I was right. She got in her car. Dad picked her up. They drove away. I got in my car soon after, drove home as quick as I could, walked in the, uh, the little apartment that Julie and I shared not, not far from the University of Oregon. I told her what had happened. I said, can you believe the way those kids acted? And she said, you need to call each one of them right now and, and ask for forgiveness. Say you're sorry. I said, you don't understand. And she said, no, you don't understand. You need to call them right now. I started with Melody. Her dad answered the phone. He said, Glenn. I'm glad you called. I was just getting ready to drive over to your apartment. (laughs) To this day, I don't know what his intent was. And then Melody came on. And before I could say a word, she said, Glenn, I love you and Julie. I want you to know that. I said, Melody, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. I want you to forgive me. She said, Glenn, of course I forgive you. Of course I do. That church is like my second home. Tell Julie I love her. Please know I love you both. I'll tell you this. In 37 years of ministry, that's the only lesson I've ever really needed. I've had to learn it over and over and over again. But that sweet 14-year-old girl who's 50 years old now, that sweet, amazing, beautiful young child turned my life around. And the same thing is true in another sense. In 37 years of ministry, I know enough about you to know that many of you have gone through painful moments of forgiveness and restoration also. The, the list of moments we could, we could make here could, could be quite long. We could start with Monica and go to Greg and to TJ and work our way all the way through to every person sitting in every one of these pews, all the way to the back of the balcony. Every one of us would have a story or stories or multiple stories. Maybe it even happened just yesterday. Maybe it feels like it happened just yesterday. Maybe it's been a week or a month or, or longer, but every one of us knows, every one of us knows that the need for forgiveness and redemption are at the center of what it means to be human. Whether it's the pain of divorce, the the terror of cancer, the loss of employment, the anguish of the anguish of grief, the simple fact is everyone in this room is facing something. That's why I love this word from Isaiah. It is a word of hope spoken from a place of pain. Listen again: A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. 
The stump of Jesse is a reference to King David's father, Jesse. He's in the lineage of this one named Jesse. The kingdom is destroyed, but there's a shoot, a branch, a righteous one, a speck of green that is emerging as a sign of hope in the middle of this charred and fractured fractured tree. You know, perhaps Isaiah was wandering through a battlefield when he came upon a stump, a burned out, charred one, and he stopped to look closely and when he did he saw there was a bit of green emerging from the middle of the blackness the the starkness of that space and he saw in that a hope a sign of resurrection of new life of a new way of, of beginning and living the fact that God was still there among them and then he was inspired to write the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon the one who is coming the spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might of knowledge and fear and a little child shall lead them. When did this vision come? When everything was perfect and lovely and happy and and joy-filled? When the angel on on the top of the tree was smiling down at everyone? When the carols could be heard in the distance and the snow was falling gently? No, it came in the midst of battle, terror, and fear. You need to know that five times in 40 years, from 740 B.C. to 700, the beautiful nation of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian army. Five times. Think of what that would be like. Imagine Imagine what it would be like to live in a land that had been destroyed five times since 1976. Five times. Wiped out, burnt down. And it's there that he has this vision. The most beautiful parts of the Bible are written in times of terror and fear. The Gospels, the story of Jesus is given in the middle of Roman rule, tyrannical rule, The Apostle Paul writes the most beautiful words to the church ever heard. The most beautiful words read or heard in 2,000 years come when he is sitting in prison in shackles and chains with scars on his back. And he writes words of love, grace, and hope. This is the Bible's way of saying that God's love and grace, God's peace and forgiveness are greater than all the evil the world could stack up against. God's grace... God's love is more powerful than evil, period. Why do I believe that? Because I've seen it here. I've seen it in these pews. I've seen it made real in the parlor, in the hallways, the parking lot. I've I've heard people speak words of forgiveness and hope and redemption to each other at Starbucks on the plaza. I've heard conversations over a glass of wine at the end of the day where tears baptized the table that separated the two. Hands were grasped. Arms were offered. Love was made real. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us, giving us hope in the future of God. You see, sisters and brothers, the dream of going home again is made real. If only, if only... We'll take a risk to forgive. If only we'll take a step to love. If only we'll give our hearts and minds, not just to God, but to each other. Through the power of the Spirit, which is upon us. Amen.